1: Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest and member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you?
0: Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing?
1: Doing great, Father. Great to be here. Great to be with you again. Uh, Father, before we get started, I just um, wanted to, to let our, our viewers know we've, we've had a, a bit of a, a problem. We just recently discovered with our email inbox where for, for one reason or another, we, um, we recently discovered that we haven't been receiving new emails uh, from, from our viewers for, for some time now. Um, certain emails have, have filtered through, uh, but it seems that anyone just, uh, filling out the, uh, the, the form and trying to send in an email is, is not being sent to us for some reason. Um, so we just recently discovered this. I'm not entirely sure how long this has been going on. So, uh, for anyone who, who has an email kind of in, in limbo right now, we, uh, believe that we can recover those and, and do, do plan to, but, uh, just wanted to give everyone a, a heads-up in regards to that. Um, so, Father, we have a, a couple things we yeah. wanted to get into tonight, um, but I guess first we wanted to, to clarify something uh, concerning Malachi Martin. Yeah, so in, in I did mention
0: this to you, program. Tom, uh, and I did want to bring it up here. Um, a couple of programs ago I mentioned uh, what I'd been told, by, what I consider to be a reliable source, that Malachi Martin was at a... Uh, well, at the time I said a consecration, but I meant an ordination. It was a priestly ordination ceremony, actually. Okay. It was supposed to be anyway, uh, by one of the Took, one of the Took line, mm-hmm. and uh, that Malachi Martin had uh, <laughs> tried to address a uh, problem that came up. There was a question about whether we had been done validly, and uh, so Malachi Martin said that uh, he had been secretly consecrated the bishop and. That he could rectify the ordination right then and there. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't a, a episcopal consecration being done by his, a Turk bishop. It was a, a priestly ordination that was being done. So I just wanted to make that clear and the honest, in the interest of, you know, making sure that I'm accurate in what I say and sure. Sure. It corresponds to uh, the information I received. So.
1: Definitely. Yeah. All right. Then, uh, Father, we have a, a couple questions regarding the SSPX. Uh, we've s- talked about them the last last program or two now. But yeah. one of our viewers asks if, uh, Father, if you've considered that rather than desiring to make an agreement with Francis's modernism, the SSPX desires Francis to make a traditional Catholic agreement with them. She says it that uh, that is an entirely different viewpoint and having heard what Bishop Fillet has said regarding this very thing I think one should give the society the benefit of the doubt and not assume that they are leaning towards modernism. <coughs> How would you respond to that?
0: Well, I appreciate the comment um, and obviously uh, this uh, person is Trying to you know look for the the good right and uh, trying to see the good, but I, I think I um, there might be a bit of a misunderstanding. I mean, one can say, okay, well, the Vatican is coming at it from the standpoint of modernism. And Pius X is looking at it, the SSPX is looking at it from the standpoint of tradition. And um, so maybe the, although we accept the Vatican wanting to, we accept the fact that the Vatican wants to bring modernism into the the equation here, or into the mix, uh, but the Pius X uh, group wants to bring tradition into the, Mm -hmm. The problem is it's a mix, though, and you really can't mix the two, you know. And uh, so the result of any such negotiations uh, will be inevitably trying to mix modernism and traditional Catholicism, and the two don't mix. When I say, well, you know, maybe it's just a difference of looking at it as a, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. Well, that's not the case, really, it doesn't come down to that, because If the glass is half full of modernism and you're trying to fill it up with traditional Catholicism, what you wind up with is not traditional Catholicism. You wind up with something, well, the modernism is poison. The modernism is deadly to the traditional Catholicism. So you still wind up with poison and trying to mix the two of them. And as I mentioned, you can't mix modernism and traditional Catholicism, neither its faith nor its practice, that is, its religion. You can't mix that without inevitably blasphemy or sacrilege entering into it. Because modernism uh, Actually redefines even what faith is. That's how fundamentally it is opposed to the true Traditional Catholic faith it really defines faith In such a way that it has an utterly different concept of even what faith is than the traditional Catholic faith, so um, It's just not possible to mix them and it's it's uh, It's very dangerous to try and what comes out of it is a deadly a concoction, really, mm. but um, Father, so, she she goes uh, on. If she's talking about their intentions, yeah. well, that's something else. Yeah, I'm saying that, uh, in fact, in practice, it's it's very bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it, she kind of asked you know, in uh, just tactical <coughs> terms, what if they're not uh, just trying to. Keep your, you know, there's a saying, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. What if they're not just trying to keep their enemies closer? And she, she mentioned some of the uh, Novus Ordo clerics. She says they are in serious sympathy with the traditional church. And so keeping the SSPX around kind of gives them the opportunity to, you know, kind of check out the, the SSPX in the traditional Catholic church. So could there not be some good coming from this kind of relationship that they have?
0: Well, uh, that's, an, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I don't mean to anyway. You know, demean uh, the question. Okay, these are these are good questions, but I think there are also some good answers. First of all, the idea of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, if these are enemies of the faith. Uh, then this is not the, the traditional Catholic practice of keeping the enemies closer. Uh, I guess that means that Pope Leo X should have made uh, Martin Luther a cardinal to keep him close. You know, if they're enemies of the faith, you can't pretend. That they're not enemies of the faith and uh, just pretend that everything is okay and that we're co religionists and we can mix the two. Um, it's simply not, not right to do that. And number two, uh, on the other, on the other point that you made, well, yes, having the pious the tenth group around and the fact that they're more or somewhat accepted, but not entirely, the fact that they're somewhat acceptable, but not entirely acceptable to the, to the Nova Ordo authorities might open some doors for the Novus Ordo clergy, but I think the message that is being sent is a very bad message. And that is, well, we can sort of, uh, you can be somewhat traditional. Be as traditional as you feel like today, as you identify. Identify as traditional today and, uh, you know, still keep your uh, one foot in the Novus Ordo and, and, you know, doubt, you know, dip your toes into the water of traditionalism. And I'm afraid that, Um, all too often I'm not saying all the time but all too often I think that's the way it's interpreted and that you can be traditional by degrees and you can still um, very much function within the the modernism of the Novus Ordo and still have as much tradition as your taste calls for Uh, it's sort of like seasoned to taste you know and uh, that's that is not what traditional Catholicism is all about again i mean modernism is an anti-catholic faith but pius x said it is the complexus of all heresies brought together it is the anti-catholic faith it's not just an anti-catholic faith it is the anti-catholic faith right and uh pius x makes it very clear (coughs) and you cannot have in the same church two different mutually opposed uh, faiths. It's impossible. It, though they can't be the faith established by our Lord Jesus Christ, that's for sure. It can't be the church established by Jesus Christ that has two uh, mutually exclusive faiths which are, which are mutually, um, uh, destructive of each other and practicing them. You know, the, the practice of the Novus Ordo, the practice of modernism is the Novus Ordo religion. Okay. And again, that is, as one would expect, as a practice of an, a non-Catholic or even anti-Catholic religion, the practice of the Novus Ordo is opposed to the traditional Catholic faith. Practice, that is, the traditional Catholic religion. And um, again, to mix them is not only a chimera, but it's, a, it's an impossibility. It's a... Uh, like mixing matter and antimatter, you know, they're just mutually destructive of each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, I th- I'm afraid this is the message that is being sent. I mean, look, look at it this way, uh, Tom. When you when you have somebody who tries to practice the traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo, and they're trying to say, well, that the the church that is brought in the Novus Ordo and that practices the Novus Ordo. Uh, is actually the Catholic Church, so we have to practice whatever faith we have within the ages and within the the realm of that, with the approval of that, and only with the approval of that. Um, Basically, what you're saying is that you have the traditional Catholic faith, which must be, and can only be practiced legitimately, with the approval of the modernists, and within their church you're actually admitting the fundamental principle of modernism, that you can have in one church multiple faiths and multiple religions. This is the very essence of ecumenism. Uh, I've said this before and i say it again, but you cannot have uh, legitimately, certainly not in the church established by our Lord Jesus Christ, two or 20 or 200 or 2,000, you cannot have two different faiths and two different religions, especially these two, which are, as I say, uh, diametrically opposed to each other. If you have any doubt about it, read Pashendi, St. Pius X encyclical of 1907, and you see very clearly, he states it without any hesitation, that these two are mutually opposed, um, and that modernism is the destruction of all true religion. So, um, how anyone has the idea that he can practice the traditional Catholic faith uh, under the under the aegis and with the, with the uh, blessing of modernism modernists and modernism, I don't know. And how they think that can be one church that actually contains both. So, um, I think I think if you ask the priests of the Society of Saint Pius X, I think if you ask the the bishops of the Society of Saint Pius X, is modernism Catholicism? Is modernism a faith or not? Is it a faith system? Is it the traditional Catholic faith? I think they would say immediately, no, it's not. And if you were to ask them, is modernism like the anti-faith? It is, the, it is, is it the antithesis of the traditional Catholic religion, according to St. Pius X? Is it destructive of the traditional Catholic religion? I think they would have to say, yes, it is. I expect that they would. If they don't say that, that would really worry me. But then I would ask them, well, is it possible that both of these faiths, modernism and true traditional Catholicism, uh, can coexist in the same church? Legitimately, right? Rightly. (laughs) I think, I would like to think they could say, well, it's impossible that they could coexist in the Church of Christ. So the question is, okay, if they could not legitimately Coexist in the Church of Christ. Which one of them is illegitimate, and why are you trying to make peace with it right. or to come to some kind of terms or agreement with it? Is this not um, compromise? Is it not treason? Actually. You know, so um, anyway, um, but I, I understand where this writer is coming from. I mean, as I say, they're trying to find a way to uh, intellectually, reasonably understand h- how. <clears throat> this détente is is going, but I mean, I, I look upon this as sort of like on the on on a, the religious level, what was going on on the secular level of détente with communism between the East and the West, and that whole process of détente was extremely destructive and and uh, very deadly for the West, you know, mm. the West being the vestiges of Christian civilization, really. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Father, I thought it was interesting. We had another email that's kind of the, the exact uh, opposite viewpoint. Um, this viewer kind of makes the point that, um, you know, we, we say all of these things about the SSPX, but then, you know, there's no official document, no official agreement as far as we know. So uh, she asked, you know, just because there's no document, does that mean that there are no consequences? Shouldn't there be some kind of consequences for... Um, you know, those who are attending the, the SSPX should not... Um, she asks if it would be possible for a, a Society of St. Pius the V priest to refuse Holy Communion to someone who would attend an SSPX uh, chapel. So just are there not any kind of con- consequences for someone to kind of play these, these games that we've been talking about? Well,
0: I, I think there are consequences to the individual souls involved. That's what concerns me. The souls of the lady, the souls of the priests, the souls of the bishops, too. Um, if they're trying to you know come up with some kind of uh something that the Catholic faith forbids them to do, you know, that is somehow find a living arrangement with modernism, you know, so that they belong in the same church and amount of the same faith and the same religion or at least coexistent. But anyway, I think that there are consequences, yes, you know, as far as the society of St. Pius V's position though. Um, I mean, we, we see the problems there, but we don't see uh, the problems with them at to this extent. At least we haven't so far come to this agreement among ourselves that the problems are so grave that we'd have to basically, you know, tell tell people to go to the priests of the Society of Saint Pius the tenth that they can't come to the Society of Saint Pius V. fifth. There are many really very good Catholic people who are going there. I think they're mistaken, and uh, I, I would just urge them, if, if they go there, to, to make their, their position known very clearly that they do not accept these, uh, these overtures to modernism. Uh, they do not accept the, the program that the Society of St. Paul's X is laying for them to st- try to seek some kind of a, uh, living arrangement with modernism. It would be a, it would be an adulterous relationship as it was for the Jews of the Old Testament. That's what the prophets condemned. Uh, the prophets condemned the leaders of Israel, the judges of Israel and so on, for trying to commit a spiritual adultery with the pagan nations around them. I mean, Solomon was a, a prime example of that, right? Uh, having a harem. Here, here's here's the, the king who built the great temple in Jerusalem, right? At the same time, he has a harem of pagan women he's trying to, trying to please and putting up altars to, so they can go and worship their pagan gods and goddesses there in, in Judea. Um, and uh, now that is like the extreme of ecumenism. But what we're trying to do today, or what they're trying to do today, the modernists, and unfortunately St. Pius X is playing right into this, uh, pretending that, well, I mean, basically implying at least that you're going to have two different religions and two different faiths in the same church. Um that is every bit as monstrous as what Solomon did. So I would t- say to the people who go to the Society St Pius the fifth I'm sorry the society St. Pius the tenth for mass, uh, if they can't come to the, the, the uh, masses of the priests of the society of St Pius the V who will not compromise with modernism and they feel that they have to go to the society of St. Pius the tenth masses, that they should make their position cl- very, very clear so they're not giving scandal, by the appearance of going along with these things that really are not, are not really legitimate traditional Catholic positions to hold.
1: Okay. Uh, well, Father, we uh, had something else we wanted to get into, and that's uh, this this latest <clears throat> letter from uh, Archbishop Vigano. It's been mm. causing quite a stir. It's been on, uh, you know, on on LifeSite News and One Peter Five, as well as <clears throat> multiple other websites. Um, it's kind of been been making the rounds, but. The link we have here uh, is titled uh, Archbishop Vigano is Vatican II, quote, untouchable. This is from the 1 Peter 5 website. And there's a lot of a lot of really interesting things in here that, uh, that Archbishop Vigano says, and I guess he's replying to a, a commentary from Peter Kwasniewski. Um, talking about some of the points that he's made, but I mean, there's a lot of um, really weighty things that that he says in here. Father, he seems at, at one point to imply, at least, that uh, Francis's church is operating as a dictatorship. Um, he talks a lot about Vatican II and uh, that essentially uh, the only the only thing that can be done is to to reject the ambiguous text uh, of Vatican II and uh, just a lot of um, very traditional. Catholic-sounding things coming from Archbishop Vigano. So, what's your take on this one? Well,
0: in this letter, Archbishop Vigano actually surpasses Archbishop Lefebvre in his judgment of Vatican II. Really? Yeah, he actually goes beyond the the rejection of Monsieur Lefebvre because uh, Monsieur Lefebvre's official position was that Vatican II must be interpreted in the light of tradition. And uh, Archbishop Viganò here actually, well, if I understand it rightly, even rejects that and says no. Yeah. No, even that is, is something that is, should not be acceptable to Catholics. So, uh, no, Archbishop Viganò clearly has an admiration for Monsignor Lefebvre, as I do, as I believe you do, and rightly so. <coughs> but uh, Archbishop Viganò's analysis of vatican ii i think is spot on here i think he really really sees it for what it is now does he see it in all of its implications i don't think so does he see the nature of this so-called council i think he's really appreciating it more and more and if i may just cite some some uh statements that he makes here by the way this uh did appear on the one peter five website the letter is, is signed, Carlo Maria Vigano, Archbishop, dated September 21st, so just yesterday, the Feast of St. Matthew the Apostle and Evangelist, and it says it's an official translation from the Italian by Diane Montagna, who is known as a correspondent, I believe, for uh, LifeSite News. Uh, so <clears throat> I would expect that LifeSite News has something to say about this. But Archbishop Vigano, begins this this uh, letter here by referring to Dr. Kwasniewski's Peter Kwasniewski's recent commentary and Dr. Kwasniewski's commentary was entitled why Viganò's critique of the council must be taken seriously and uh, Archbishop Viganò said it impressed him greatly Um, He points out a statement made um, by uh, Peter Kwasniewski in his in his commentary, which Archbishop Vigano appreciated very much, he said, "What I am particularly pleased about is that, quote, ever since Archbishop Vigano's June ninth letter, and his subsequent writing on the subject, people have been discussing what it might mean to annul the Second Vatican Council." <laughs> That's pretty interesting. He yeah. used the word "annul" to nullify the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, he says. I find it interesting, that this is Archbishop Viganot saying this, I find it interesting that we are beginning to question a taboo that for almost 60 years has prevented any theological, sociological, and historical criticism of the council. Now, Archbishop Viganò has already said in previous writings that it took him 60 years of trying to work with and under this council to realize what a travesty it really is. And come to the conclusion it has to be buried, it has to be, it has to be annulled. And so when he says, "60 years has been, it's been 60 years since this council took place," and uh, you know he's saying it's taken that long now to finally begin to question what he calls a taboo, to really evaluate this council. And he goes in the course of the letter now to examine what that taboo has been and why it has been. Taboo, in other words, why it has been something forbidden. Absolutely, anyone should question this council. <clears throat> and he, he talks about the problem of uh, the council, the, the problem the council presents, because he said, during the course of the last 60 years, <clears throat> so many things of the church have been called into question by the modernists, who upcold called Vatican II. He said, at the same time, they're calling into question the canons of the council of Trent, The Syllabus of Errors, uh, Pascendi, and so on, Humare Vitae, of Paul VI, and so on. Well, they're calling all of that into question. The one thing they say you cannot question, you must never question, or even question about questioning, is Vatican II. That's the one thing that remains absolutely sacrosanct. And this is what he condemns. He says, this is wrong. He says, I already expressed my opinion on the hermeneutic of continuity, Theorized by Benedict XVI and Constantly taken up by the defenders of Vatican II now. This is very interesting here. I think Because Archbishop Viganò is actually Criticizing this whole idea presented by Benedict XVI who is held up to be the apotheosis of Orthodoxy since Vatican II right and uh, But Viganò says Archbishop Viganò says his of continuity not only doesn't make sense it actually is an argument against Vatican II, because if you keep reading, you come to the idea what he's saying is, if Vatican II needs a hermeneutic to explain it, it tells you there's something already gravely wrong with it. That's so never that's never been needed before. In so any other. <laughs> it's never been needed before for any other council, yeah. because <coughs> the hermeneutic is to explain it, is to explain it. And he says the whole point of the council was to explain. And clarify the clarify the faith. Yes. And if the council needs a hermeneutic to explain what it really meant, he says, Already, already you have something that is altogether unique yeah. and utterly um, well reprehensible in terms of Catholic teaching. Um, so he says if the if the council needs a hermeneutic to, to explain it, to try to explain it in a Catholic sense. It's already defective. There's something gravely wrong with it. And how, what does that say, not only about Benedict XVI's idea of this hermeneutic of continuity, that you have to explain the Council, you know, as a continuation of what the Church has always taught before, and Monsignor Lefebvre's explaining or interpreting the Council in the light of Catholic tradition, because they seem to be the same idea. But that's why, as Archbishop Vigano has has actually taken a step beyond that. and said if we need that hermeneutic hermeneutic of continuity, if we need to interpret the Council in the light of Vatican, in the light of Catholic tradition, then we already have a serious problem with this. He said, which should call the whole thing into question. And um, he he talks about the analogia analogia fide, analogia fide, the, uh, the analogy of faith you know, as the idea that we're going to use the analogy of faith as as our, our fundamental basis for conducting this hermeneutic of explaining, of explaining what the Council really meant. But he points out in here later on that the analogy of faith can only apply to truth. The truths of the faith, it can't apply to error. You can't use the analogy of faith to try to justify or somehow clarify error. He says, so right away, you can't use the the analogy of faith as the theologians, the true Catholic theologians have done in the past, to produce some kind of hermeneutic of of continuity to try to make the council fit within the realm of Catholic Catholic teaching. So again, he's really getting down into the, the fundamental questions regarding Vatican II. He says they managed to put the label sacrosanct ecumenical council <laughs> on what is really the modernist ideological manifesto. He calls it their ideological manifesto of modernism. Interesting, right? Even as the Jansenists tried to do the same thing with the Synod of Pistoia, but it was condemned by Pius VI. He said this is what the modernists have tried to do with Vatican II. And then he goes on in his letter, he talks about how Catholics look at it this way, that it had the form of a council, but the substance is not is different. So they're trying to somehow find a way to make the substance of the council match the promise of the form of a council of the church. Whereas he says the modernists actually look at it differently. They used the form of the council to give legitimacy to non-Catholic substance. Is what he's saying here, which is very interesting, because essentially what I, I understand to say is the modernists tried to legitimize by the giving the form of a council to what was actually illegitimate substance to illegitimate substance that is not Catholic, Catholic. Curious that he would actually make a statement about that. But you know, he goes on to even say this. You talked about di- dictatorship. He says, tyrannies and dictators do this. He says, they try to give legitimate form to commands, propositions that are actually illegitimate, to give them the veneer of authority so that people will accept what they know if not by by faith, by reason, they know this is not true. This is not right. But because they have the stamp of authority on it or the appearance of authority to it, people accept it. He said this is typical of what is done when there's a coup d'etat, and he refers to that. He says if this has also happened within the church, it is because the accomplices of this coup d'etat have no supernatural sense. They fear neither God nor eternal damnation. And considers themselves, consider themselves partisans of progress invested with a prophetic role that legitimizes them in all their wickedness. Just as communism's mass exterminations are carried out by party officials convinced of promoting the cause of the proletariat. The reason why I found that, that statement so extraordinary, so powerful is if you go back to Pashendi, it's exactly what St. Pius X was saying about the modernists. They consider themselves having this prophetic role. This, they have this superior wisdom which legitimizes everything they do. And so no matter how destructive what the result of what they're doing, it is all in, for a good cause and for an important reason, that they have to remake the church. And if it, it's a process of tearing it down first then so be it. Does that sound like the revolutionaries of today here in America? Yeah, <clears throat> Burn it to the ground. Burn it to the ground Get to destroy the old system. Well, the modernists, all progressives of all stripes, all go back to the same, what he says, a hatred They neither fear God nor damnation and consider themselves partisans of progress invested with a prophetic role, which legitimizes all that they do. That is that is so true. I, I have to congratulate Archbishop <laughs> Vigano in not only seeing that, uh, but in expressing it so so powerfully. You know, mm-hmm. not many people could express it so well. But it's hard to read it and not be impressed by it. And, and Father,
1: isn't isn't that like the very definition of of, of Marxism?
0: Isn't that? <laughs> this is the whole idea of Karl yeah. Marx. Yeah. yeah, tear it down, right? I mean, Violence, destruction. Yeah. That's that's his method. That. That is the practice of the faith, Marxism. His religion is destruction.
1: Mo- modernist is modernism is spiritual. Modernism is, is
0: basically spiritual Marxism. Yeah. Well, time I made that point before actually. Yeah. Because in what year was Bashendi written?
1: 1907.
0: In what year did Our Lady appear to Fatima? Uh, 19...
1: 1917.
0: Ten years later. Yeah. Pius X is warning about the revolution in the church. Yeah. And Our Lady was warning about the errors of Russia spreading spreading throughout the world. Yeah. Right? Marxism. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the two are absolutely related. Yeah. They're bedfellows, yeah. sad to say. And he goes on in the very next paragraph. He says, in the first case, the analysts of the council documents in the light of tradition... I'm sorry, let me repeat that. In the first case, the analysis of the council documents in the light of tradition clashes with the observation that they have been formulated in such a way as to make clear the subversive intent of their drafters. This is something that he's making clear here. Those who drafted these documents were subversive of the faith. He says, so when we talk about analyzing the council documents in the light of tradition, he says, That that ignores the fact that the documents themselves were formulated to be subversive of the faith. And that's why he's rejecting this whole idea of even trying to interpret the council documents in the light of Catholic tradition. Because he believes they are intrinsically subversive of the faith. That that well, was their intent,
1: and of course they are, father, because I mean, how many how many Protestants and other non Catholics were involved in the council?
0: Uh, I mean, well, they all recognize, <laughs> yeah. and yet you have millions of Novus Ordo Catholics out there who just can't seem to get that point, right? Yeah. Maybe the fact that he's saying this now will open their eyes. At least some of them, we hope, anyway. Right? His eyes clearly have been opened to that fact, and I mean, what you're saying, Tom, is so true. It should be. It should be obvious by you now, after all these 60 years, I mean people have been saying this for 60 years now. Yeah. What is remarkable here is that you have an archbishop who was so embedded in this yeah. and now, by the grace of God, he sees so yeah. clearly. And yeah. I think this speaks to his humility, that he that he would actually say, now, I, I see this now. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, I don't know, it just gives me a very high, very great estimation of uh, mm-hmm. The, the person, the yeah. character. <laughs> but And I thank God for the grace that's being given him, and I thank him for cooperating with that grace. And a little bit further, there are certain, I would say, telling moments in his letter that are, are very, very clarifying uh, of the situation today. He says at one point, an unclear passage from sacred scripture or from the Holy Fathers, can be the object of a hermeneutic, but certainly not an act of the magisterium, whose task it is precisely to dispel any lack of clarity. So you see why, he says, we can't apply this idea of hermeneutic to magisterial statements. And uh, he says, yet both conservatives and progressives find themselves unwittingly in agreement, in recognizing a kind of dichotomy between what a council is and what that council, that is Vatican II, is between the doctrine of all previous councils and the doctrine set forth or implied in that council. Now, what he, said, he says here, I think, is extremely important to understand, and I'm not sure that everybody will understand, <coughs> because when he talks about how we can take a, a, a writing from, a passage from Sacred Scripture or a, a passage from the writings of the Fathers of the Church and we can apply the hermeneutic of tradition by saying, okay, we understand the meaning of this in the context of Catholic tradition. But he says, when it comes to a magisterial decree, the whole purpose of the magisterium is to supply that hermeneutic and to make clear what the Fathers have said and what the what the, uh, the sacred scriptures say. If you have to apply a hermeneutic to a, to make clear what the Magisterium is saying, about making clear what the Fathers are saying, that completely goes against the point of the Magisterium. Right. And uh, I, I, it's so important that he's, he's saying that by the conservatives in the Novus Ordo, going along with this idea now of trying to explain the council in the light of Catholic tradition, they're actually agreeing with the progressives. They're agreeing with the leftists. They're actually agreeing with the modernists. <clears throat> they're finding that some, some kind of a dichotomy, saying, well, there are all the other councils which explain the place perfectly clearly. We don't need a, a hermeneutic about them. But for Vatican II, we need a hermeneutic there because (coughs) it's something unto itself. It's like a different species of council. And he says, here we have the conservatives and the leftists, the modernists, coming together in agreement. He's pointing out part of the problem we're talking about here with those emails we addressed here. Yeah, exactly. The conservatives and the progressives coming together on certain agreement about certain things on modernist principles. Yeah. That's I, I find this to be very, very telling that he's saying this. In the past on this program, I pointed out that the conservative New Order Catholics are actually redefining the papacy according to Francis and what he's doing. Like Francis is redefining the papacy for them. Even uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski kind of implied this, that, well, we've learned things about the papacy as we've gone through history, and we've discovered that popes can do things that we didn't think popes could do before. And now, as if to say, now that we know with Francis, because certainly he's the pope, you can't question that, now we've learned that popes can say things and do things like this, that in the past Catholics would never have said popes could do. So he was actually acknowledging, we're redefining our understanding of the papacy by Francis and his understanding of the papacy. But you see what Archbishop Viganò is saying here. He's actually going me one better. He's saying that the the conservative Catholics have actually for 60 years now been redefining their whole concept of a council. He's saying what I hadn't even thought of yet. The Novus Ordo Catholics are redefining the papacy, according to Francis. But the conciliar Catholics... Have been redefining the whole idea of a council for the last sixty years, ever since Vatican II. That's a, that's exactly what he's saying here, and I have to hand it to him. He's exactly right. He's exactly right. So, if I may uh, expatiate just a little bit more, sure. I'm sorry for my place the <laughs> conversation here, but I really want to give Archbishop Vigano his due in this uh, because he's making things clearer to me. In fact, we've been talking. I've been talking about this for the last forty plus years. I was ordained forty-two something years ago, and um, so his in very rapid time here. He's he's come to see things very very clearly, so much so that I'm reading his letter and light bulbs are going on in my mind too. (laughs) He says, "It isn't possible to change reality to make it correspond to an ideal shema." if the evidence shows that some propositions contained in the Council documents and similarly in the Acts of Bergoglio's Magisterium are heterodox, and if doctrine teaches us that the Acts of the Magisterium do not contain error, the conclusion is not that these propositions are not erroneous, but that they cannot be part of the Magisterium. Et Voilà! <laughs> right? <laughs> they're erroneous. And so we can't say that nearly that they're erroneous erroneous, rather we have to conclude they are not errors taught by the magisterium, rather they are not teaching of the magisterium at all, because the magisterium of the Catholic Church cannot teach error. <laughs> this is he period. He actually says the word period in the end of that, as if to emphasize the fact. <laughs> that this is the way it is. These cannot be the work of the Magisterium. Do you realize what he's saying here, Tom? He's saying that Vatican II, and what Bergoglio is saying, at least much of it is, even at that, are not statements of the Magisterium of the Catholic Church. Very, very interesting statement. Very, I should say, forceful statement. This is like a battering ram against Vatican II, its documents. And here he's even talking about them uh, merely on the level of heterodoxy. So this is a very, very hard-hitting statement. And he goes on, hermeneutics, again, he's trying to make this point perfectly clear so he can understand everything else he's saying and his conclusions. Hermeneutics serve to clarify the meaning of a phrase that is obscure or that appears to contradict doctrine. Hermeneutics are not used to correct error. And that's why he says you cannot use that to substantially correct an error after it has been spoken. You cannot use this method to try to fix Vatican II. And his whole point here is you can't fix Vatican II. So, again, you know we have the cancel culture today, right? And so what he appears to be saying here, and I, you know, I don't know that he'll ever watch the program or even know of its existence, but I would like to ask him if he's saying in another way, in terms of our cancel culture today, you know, we have to cancel it, right? If it doesn't fit with the modern narrative. Is he saying that because Vatican II sought to cancel Catholic tradition, we must cancel Vatican II? That's the only thing we can do with it. <coughs> we simply have to cancel it. <coughs> he goes on later to say the aim of Vatican II's public defenders has turned out to be the struggle of Sisyphus. Sisyphus, you know, the Greek tragic hero? <coughs> he was punished trying to bring fire to earth, or for having brought fire to earth. You know how he's punished, right? <coughs> no He As this enormous boulder, and for all eternity, he has to struggle to push this gigantic boulder uphill. And just as he reaches the crest of the hill, <coughs> he loses control and it rolls back down to the bottom. He has to go back down and roll it back up the hill again. And <coughs> for eons and eons and eons, he will always be engaged in that one exercise, but he will never succeed. <coughs> And Archbishop Vigano says, this is what the defenders of Vatican II are doing, essentially, in trying to defend it. He says, the aim of Vatican II's public defenders has turned out to be the struggle of Sisyphus. As soon as they succeed by a thousand efforts and a thousand distinctions in formulating a seemingly reasonable solution that doesn't directly touch their little idol, immediately their words are repudiated by opposing statements from a progressive theologian, a German prelate, or Francis himself. And so the conciliar boulder rolls back down the hill again, where gravity attracts it to its natural resting place. That's where it belongs in his mind. That's where it belongs. Don't try rolling it up the hill. It's an exercise in futility is what it comes down to. And he goes on again to say, "Well, I don't want to uh, go on ad infinitum here. One can read his letter, but you see, as we're getting toward the end of his letter, he does talks about talk about those uh, who tried to deal with a problem. He says that it continues to persist after sixty years." Mm-hmm. And he says this reveals a perfect consistency with the deliberate will of the innovators who prepared its documents and influenced its proponents. He says if this process, this 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 exercise of Sisyphus to roll that boulder up to the top of the hill has been going on for 60 years now and they still haven't succeeded in bringing it into line with Catholic tradition, He says, Does not this make us realize that there is an obex, an obstacle? An obstacle which is what he calls it an insurmountable obstacle that forces us to consider what is Catholic is really not Catholic. He says, Against all the use of reason, against all reasonableness, are we trying, they're trying to force us to acknowledge as Catholic what is really in itself not Catholic. That's the insurmountable obstacle of Vatican II, he says. He said one needs to keep clearly in mind that the analogia fide applies precisely to the truths of faith and not to error. Okay. Again, this is why he says you can't use this to try to find a way to bring Vatican II in harmony with with the traditional Catholic faith, because it was... It was uh, contrived by those who did not have the faith, and their, their purpose was revolutionary from the beginning. So, actually, the reason why I'm going through this, not quite paragraph by paragraph, but I think salient point by salient point, is because I'd like our, our watchers to actually go and find this document, okay. and I'd like them to actually kind of read through it with me, Because I fear if they do, they might not, they might miss some very important points that he makes, not understand the significance of it. So, not that Archbishop Vigano needs a hermeneutic hermeneutic done by Father Jenkins, I understand that. (laughs) But his readers might not be familiar with some of the terms he's using here, like the analogia uh, fide, or hermeneutic of continuity, or whatever. So I thought it would be important to have a certain commentary uh to enable you know people who are reading this to really grasp the significance of what he's saying here assuming that I understand it correctly and I, I think I do he says the central vice therefore lies in having fraudulently led the council fathers to approve ambiguous texts which they considered Catholic enough to reserve the plotchet it means their approval. And then using the same ambiguity to get them to say exactly what the innovators wanted them to say. So, <clears throat> notice he says the central vice involved in all of this process of Vatican II and its 60 years of effort to Catholicize it is in having brought in these documents so ambiguous that council fathers would approve them. And then the modernists using the ambiguity to drive home the heterodox point. Now, we've been saying this for years, acknowledge you know, this is not news to you or news to many of our listeners here, but Arch- but Archbishop Vigano sees that very clearly now, and he expresses it very, very well. Um, so, you know when, when, uh, for example, um, Dietrich von Hildebrand writes *The Trojan Horse* in *The City of God*, and he talks about Vatican II being this Trojan horse that has been put together for the destruction of the city. I mean, he's already been saying, he's already said decades ago, he's already made this point. But um, the uh, the point needs to be remade and remade and remade it needs for every generation for every everyone that comes up we have to constantly try to drive the point home of the reality of what's happening here what the revolution is doing in fact that entire paragraph i think is important enough to read it it's not that long the central vice therefore lies in having fraudulently led the council fathers to approve ambiguous texts which they considered Catholic enough to deserve their Plotchet, and then using that same ambiguity to get them to say exactly what the innovators wanted. Those texts cannot today be changed in their substance to make them orthodox or clearer. They must simply be rejected. According to the forms that the supreme authority of the church shall judge appropriate in due course since they are vitiated by a malicious intention. You see what he's saying here? They are corrupt already in the egg, right from the start, right from conception, by the malicious intention of the modernists. And it will have to be determined whether an anomalous and disastrous event, such as Vatican II, can still merit the title of ecumenical council. If we can even call it that, he's even raising the question. Once its heterogeneity compared to previous councils is universally recognized. A heterogeneity so evident that it requires the use of a hermeneutic, something that no other council has ever needed. So he's saying that this council is like unlike any other council. Does it even deserve the name? Can it even be called legitimately an ecumenical council? He's even raising that question here. Thank goodness. And he goes on to say that um, it is equally true that the Abu Dhabi Declaration, you know that declaration with the imam where Francis says that God wills the multiplicity of diversity of religions, right? Clearly, heretical statement. Uh, Archbishop Vigano says, it is equally true that the Abu Dhabi Declaration would not have been conceivable without the premise of Lumen Gentium. One of the great so-called dogmatic declarations of Vatican II paved the way for this heresy of Francis today, essentially what he's saying. My last great citation from this letter is, is this. Rightly, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski writes, states, and this is a quote, he gives a lengthy quote here, it is the mixture, the jumble of great, good, indifferent, bad, generic, ambiguous, problematic, erroneous, all of it at enormous length that makes Vatican II uniquely deserving of repudiation. End of quote. And then uh, Archbishop Vigano says, The voice of the Church, which is the voice of Christ, is instead crystal clear and unambiguous and cannot mislead those who rely on its authority. And he quotes again, This is why the last council is absolutely irrecoverable. If the project of modernization has resulted in a massive loss of Catholic identity, even of basic doctrinal competence and morals, the way forward is to pay one's last respects to the great symbol of that project and see it buried. Okay? Okay? Well, to pay one's last respects to it, I would not pay any respects to this. (laughs) It's simply something that has to be buried. You have to cut off the heads of the hydra, cauterize them, and bury it with what you have to do here. So I think they're on the right track. I don't think they've arrived quite at the destination yet, but I do think they're at the right track. So I'd recommend... To our listeners to uh, find the text of this letter of Archbishop Vigano and to read it. Read it carefully. And if you want to read it through with the explanation I gave here, fine. If just soon read it on your own. Well, that's fine too. But if you have any questions about it, <coughs> I'm sure you could probably... Uh, uh, well, you can certainly address them to be here if we get our email fixed. Yeah,
1: we plan to, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, you might even be able to contact LifeSite News and d- direct the questions through them mm-hmm. to Archbishop Vigano himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sure. Perhaps so. Mm-hmm. So in any case, I thought this was uh, kind of like a shot heard around the world, in a sense. Yeah, you yeah. Because it gives me hope that uh, actually come and see the big picture. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. Well, Father, thanks for uh, thanks for going through all of this uh, with us tonight, and uh, thanks for your help with the other questions as well, and Absolutely. thanks for everything you do. Um, God bless thanks you. Thanks
0: to our viewers, yeah. and uh, I ask you to please pray for some special intentions. I just got word before the program that a very, very dear dear soul passed away. Some we've known, Catholic friend, you know, their family, part of their family, and it's uh, it pretty hard, but... Uh, I can't even mention the name because even the family is not entirely informed yet. But I do ask you to pray for uh, for a dear soul who just passed away earlier today. Absolutely. I thank you for that. Yep,
1: Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate
0: yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.